0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Chances are if you have one favourite Slovakian handball player, it's goalkeeper Maros Kolpak, who changed cricket forever. This episode, I got a guest in to talk all about that. Nick Friends, digital journalist, and cricketer. In 1926 and 1927, René Lacoste was the world's number one tennis player, but over the years, his tennis career has been forgotten, and he's now known as a shirt brand. Jean-Luc Bosman was a Belgian footballer whose career was overshadowed by the Bosman rule, and cricket we have our own, Vinu Madcad, a genius player, opening batsman, frontline bowler, who in the end saw a batsman cheating and ran him out, and that is what his name is now attached to. Maros Kolpak's career was forgotten in handball a long time ago, but because of the way he's affected county cricket and a few other sports around the world, at the very least, his name has lived on. All right, Nick, it's important that the world knows that my former PE teacher back in high school actually played handball for Hungary. So I'm pretty much an expert on handball. But since you're the guest, could you just let the audience know how good Slovakia are at handball?
0: <laughs> I am no more an expert on handball than you are, that's for sure. But um, I think, curiously, they're not a big handball nation. I, I think it was probably one of the more interesting findings of what I ended up working on, which is that I guess, given the size of the Colpac name in obviously in cricket over the last 17, 18 years, I guess we'd almost assume that that he's an enormous name in his own sport, but I think the truth is that I think until 2009, their men had never appeared at a World Championship. They've only appeared at one since in 2011. Kolpak himself only played 71 games for his country, which sounds a lot, but I think Richards. But my my pronunciation is is not what it might be. But um Richard Stockel, I believe, played 229 games for Slovakia. He was another goalkeeper. So so really looking at a bloke who played a quarter of the number of games as the sort of record appearance holder in his own position for his country. So, so in many
1: ways, the Tim Ambrose of Slovakia, yeah? Is that fair?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, well, let's go with that.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, what, was he a good player? I mean, he obviously played in the German league, which is a decent league. So he was an okay player, Maros Kolpak.
0: The majority of his career in, in Germany was spent playing in the second tier. And back then, sort of late 90s, early 2000s, that second tier was, it was sort of regionally based. It was almost like what you've got in England with your, I guess, beyond the football league pyramids, you have, you have your Conference North, your Conference South. So he played in the South part and played for a side called, that is now known as Ryan Neckerlauen. And they've become sort of a powerhouse of German handball. But at the time that he was there, they certainly weren't. They were very much a a small side. And I think the information I gleaned was that if you were a foreign player playing at sort of the age he was, in the second tier, in the regional tier, the chances are you weren't all that high up, you weren't all that prestigious. Obviously the game has grown with with professionalisation as all as all sports have in the last 20 odd years. And, the money involved but at the time the German league I think along with the Spanish league was sort of the two main professional leagues so yes he was doing well to be there but at the same time the majority of his career where he played most of his handball in Germany was actually at a time yeah when he wouldn't necessarily say he was so I mean certainly one of the interesting things I found was that a lot of the people I mean virtually all the people I spoke to had never heard of him or his case and that's in terms of German handball so so I don't think he was that big a name.
1: I think that's safe to say. I mean, it it is interesting, isn't it? Like within his sport, he was just a player, a fringe player, decent enough to get a professional contract, but in no way was he noteworthy. I mean, you, at one stage you ask for information from someone when you're doing your piece and they just send you his Wikipedia page, don't they?
0: Yeah, and that was the I mean, that was the German Handball Federation. You know, and he went to court with them. It's a 3-year court battle that ended up in the European Court of Justice and after 2 weeks of searching. And I know I mean, I don't think this was a lazy oh, you know, we can't be bothered kind of thing. I mean, this was two weeks of various contacts getting back to me and emailing me saying, we're still looking, we're still looking. And yeah, and at the end of it, I got a Wikipedia page and a a screenshotted page of a of a book that just documented the ruling. And it was very strange, but it was, as I say, sort of, it, it was a very common theme. I mean, in terms of going to the club, Ryan Nicolaouen, there was no one working at the club now. It's a club that's come a long way, Bundesliga champions in 2016, 2017, and we're nowhere near that in his time at the club. And no one at the club was there at the time, had any recollection of of the case. Um, even one of his coaches at the time passed on my questions to someone else that he thought might be a better place to answer. That person that he passed them on to didn't feel any better placed. Mm. It was really was a sort of a wild goose chase of sorts. I mean, even very prominent journalists in the handball world, guys who I was passed to being told, you know, he's the encyclopedia of the game and it's worth knowing, he'll know it. You know, no one knew anything really beyond the fact that he'd played for that team at that time. And I guess the reason for that is that ultimately he won his case. So, so I guess, I mean, the changes perhaps weren't as overarching and, and the impact perhaps wasn't as overarching on their own sport as it might have been had the case been upheld and the German Handball Federation won their case.
1: So if you could explain why he went to court, it was
0: with <laughs> Deutschland Bund. It was indeed. I mean, my German is no better than yours. But yes, that is the German Handball Federation. And the gist of it is um, I still can't work out after months of trying to write this down whether it is more complex or, or more simple than I've described it. Um, essentially, the German Hamel Federation had a quota on the number of non-European foreign players allowed in a matchday squad in for league and cup competitions. The idea being that if you patch your team full of non-European foreign players, it would impact on the, on the quality of the German national side, which I think, from speaking to people, it did. And that was why they tried to bring this rule in. So essentially, this was an extension of the Bosman ruling, which we hear a lot more about in football than, than obviously doing cricket. And the Bosman ruling essentially it was more overarching than this, but one aspect of it was that it allowed, it sort of restricted any quota on European foreign players. So members of the EU who were playing in other EU countries, you couldn't restrict the number of them playing in a particular league. The Kolpak ruling went beyond that. Essentially, Maros Kolpak was Slovakian. In 2003, Slovakia was not a member of the European Union, although they did have an association agreement with the EU, which essentially sort of gave you certain rights within the EU, and one of which being that you should be treated as a member of the EU in terms of a member of the workforce, which is where his, I guess, complaints and his case came from, which is that he... So part of this quota treated him as a Slovakian, as a non-EU foreign player, whereas by being Slovakian and by having that association membership, his belief was that he should be viewed as an EU player and therefore not be part of any quota. So the team had signed too many non-European foreign players, not all of them could feature in the same squads, and they went to court over, and he was the goalkeeper. He was actually... The interesting part of this actually is that he was quite secure in his own team he was the goalkeeper. He was an international player playing in the second tier of German handball. You know, as I say, not well-known, but certainly at that level of handball, a very highly thought of player. So you end up in this position where they've gone to court essentially to not to help him per se, but I guess to correct the principle.
1: And that is one of the more interesting things is that, you know, he could have pulled out at any stage, but he decided to fight on. Obviously, they go on to win. Was this a big story in handball at the time? Is anything a big story in Hamburg?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is the question. Now, um, I think another interesting thing about that actually is that one of, so between the start of the case in 2000 and the final ruling in 2003, one of his fellow non European foreign players left the club. So there was a time when this didn't affect them. They were not affected by it. They had the right number for the quota. They could play and get on with their game. And the only reason this, 17 years on, has Colpat's name to it, the case had to be submitted in the name of an individual. And he was the individual who was prepared to go along with this and to, to take it to court and to go through the three years of... He was very conscious of calling it hardship. He doesn't view it as that. He claims he was treated very well by the league, by the club, by his teammates. He was a valued member of the team, valued member of the league. Because at the very least, he had this association membership within the country. It wasn't as if he was going to be chucked out of the country had he lost the case, if you see what I mean. Mm. This was very much a handball-specific issue within a wider society. So just being one of his coaches at the time, certainly in Germany it was seen as a big thing. Whether it was seen as a big thing beyond that, I don't know. In fact, speaking to the chairman of British Hamble, who is a former coach, former player, he's been in the game for 40 years, he admitted that when I got in touch with him, he had to Google colpat's name. He sort of knew the name, but he wasn't sure whether that was through, obviously, the cricket world or, or through Hamble. So I think on a wider scale, no. As I say, because I think it would have been a far more significant case had German Hamble won. Because what you've got now is, you know, the Denmark team that won the 2019 World Championships had 10 different players who, at the time, were playing their trade in Germany. So what you've seen because of the ruling actually is that you've still got a very multicultural, globalised league in terms of the German Bundesliga. Because he won the case, it's not actually had that impact of restricting players. So um, was it a big case at the time in Germany? Certainly. But I think beyond that, not so much.
1: So these associate European nations, is that what we were calling them? Sort of like affiliate members of the EU. Am I right?
0: To a point. So my understanding of this, <laughs> which for my own education is quite a good piece to work on. Um, so basically... I mean, yes and no. There are associate members of the EU well beyond Europe, which is why the COPAC ruling became so significant to cricket, because you've got the um, 78 countries, I think in 2000, signed the Cotonou Agreement, which comprised South Africa, Caribbean nations, Pacific Island nations, which I guess is where cricket came into this. So the COPAC ruling was very significant, essentially, because it clarified that nuance around the association agreements and what that meant from a sports perspective in european nations if you see what i mean so so in the in the uk obviously until brexit which obviously has sort of changes further if you had an association agreement with the eu that applied to the uk just as it applied to germany in the early 2000s so yeah i guess so where it became significant in cricket is that south africa were part of this caribbean nations are part of this pacific island states were part of this and then suddenly it op- so it sort of opened the door on a far wider scale than just german hamble if you see what i mean
1: It does. I mean, it makes sense once you realise it actually probably has a bigger impact on another sport, even if it wasn't those sports that originally thought about it. And the first cricketer was Claude Henderson. How long after the Kolpak ruling was Claude uh, Kolpak?
0: Well, it was the next year, 2004. In fact, we've just, I believe this week was the anniversary. uh, I think it was the 25th. I think it was the 16th anniversary of Claude Henderson joining Leicestershire. It's interesting, actually, if you go back and look at the, the original quick info story from March 2004 of Henderson joining Leicestershire, it's... It's funny, the way it's explained, it's all sort of laid out in the legal terms that I've, I've been trying to explain here and because it was new. And now, I think Jerome Taylor was among the most recent players to to sign up. I think that was February February this year. But there might have be been one since. you might be the most recent. But either way, if you read the Jerome Taylor equivalent, there's none of that explanation now. It's just Jerome Taylor signs as a player. It's just become part of cricket's lexicon, I guess. Whereas, if you go back to 2004, it was Claude Henderson was the first. And I guess Leicestershire were one of many teams who obviously took advantage of it, not in a clandestine sense, but they used it a lot. I mean, they were one of two teams involved in that sort of infamous game in 2008 um, with North Ants when there were 13 overseas-born players playing that single game. I think it was Nicky Boya, Andrew Hall, Burt Dippenar, obviously Henderson himself, Johan van der Watt, Jermaine Lawson from West Indies. I guess that was the height of it, I think, from a cricket perspective. Yeah, and Henderson was the first, and as I say, it was about 16 years ago this week.
1: It wasn't the only way that players were trying to in. It seemed around the 2000s, for whatever reason, players worked out that there were maybe other ways that they could get into the system. I remember Ricky Wessels. I think he was a coal pack, and then he went back to South Africa. Mm. When he came back to England, he tried to apply on something like a entrepreneur's visa or something. So there was a lot of players doing a lot of different things, and not all the South Africans no. and you know New Zealand and West Indians are actually on coal pack rulings, are they?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing and something that's been. I'm going to say widely misunderstood, because it's been a very confusing... I think it's confused a lot of people for a long time. You know, take Ryan Tendisgarth, for example. Ryan Tendisgarth arrived to Essex a year before Claude Henderson. But Scars was on a European passport, as a lot of the guys are now. So you've got a fair few guys on ancestry visas. Even some of the South African guys have come over. I think Ricardo Vasconcelos has got a Hungarian passport. I don't know if he's playing... I don't know if he's on a Hungarian passport ruling, really or if he's here as a cold-back player. But, but yeah, it's one of the nuances that there are... You know, the EU passport... I imagine I'm right in saying this, the EU passport ruling presumably comes stems from stems from the Bosman ruling rather than the Coldpack, I mean, certainly rather than the rule ruling. I know that, yeah, Tender Skarte, speaking to him a couple of weeks ago, in fact, said that the only reason he was allowed to pay for Essex that he ever got signed was because Essex knew he held a Dutch passport. So, and he wasn't even the first there. I think Basuderen was at Sussex at the time as well and a few others. So, and obviously a few other Dutch person in the past. So, um, It's an interesting one. It's, I think it's become, I think it's one of the most interesting parts of this whole, if you sort of get beyond the, I guess the legal jargon of Coldpack, I think one of the most interesting things about this, and actually one of the reasons I wanted to do this in the first place was, I guess that journey of this Slovakian handball player whose name essentially has become this almost taboo adjective in English cricket when anyone and everyone has been cast as a cold pack player, whether that's a, a positive and you know, correct use, incorrect use. it's It's just become this overarching term to describe players, I guess, coming from abroad who are not there on overseas deals.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. So according to Wikipedia, and you can correct this, I'm sure you know them all off the top of your head, but <laughs> according to Wikipedia, there's been 64. That probably hasn't been updated over the last couple of weeks, so it's possible a couple more have been signed, mm. but there's been 64. Among them, you've got Tino Best, Shiv Chandrapal, Morné Morkel, Andre Nell, Grant Elliott, Sean Pollock, Faf DuPlessis, Grant Flower, and Otis Gibson. I suppose what my question in here is, is who's your favourite?
0: Oh, <laughs> that is that some is, good players there. No? Good yeah, question. I mean, that, that's there are a lot of good cricketers. Yeah, um, quite a question. Who is my favourite? Depends what you're judging on. I mean, are you judging on impact or?
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I mean, it's a fair question. I mean, Colin Ingram probably completely changed his life as a col pack player, didn't he? He was a very oh, massively ordinary is. cricketer, and has now gone on and one of the IPL players and a top T20 player around the world. Yeah, and then you have got other guys like Sean Pollock who sort of turned up for one year at the end.
0: Andre Adams was someone who actually contributes a lot to this piece, and he was really honest about it. He was an interesting, a really interesting case, obviously, because he's obviously from New Zealand, he'd had a short international career. Adams qualified for the Copac ruling via ancestry through the Grenadines, through his father, I think. And he's, yeah, I guess a really interesting case in that sense. He was really honest on what it did for him. I mean, it did change his career. He was going to give up on the sport. I mean, by his own admission, he felt like...
1: Yeah, he retired, hadn't he? Yeah. And then he was going on a ski trip, if I remember correctly. I think I might have interviewed him about this. Before. Yeah. Yeah, he retired, he was going on a ski trip, and then he got this call, and he went, oh, okay, and he end up playing for Knott's for how long?
0: 344 first-class wickets for Knott's as a colpak player, having basically decided the game was done for him. He got to a stage where he didn't feel like he could get back in the New Zealand team. I think there was some... Issues with the management. He felt like his chance had gone. there has been a lot written about this, I think, really well. And Dan Gallon wrote a terrific, properly overarching piece on why guys are here. You know, it's been to Dane Vilas, Simon Harmer. A lot of these guys for yeah. um, for Quick Info recently. Matt Roller did um, a couple of interviews with Simon Harmer, Kyle Abbott, Wilbert Firth, and even sounded did another one talking about, I guess, what comes next. And Harmer, especially, has been very open on on all this and on, on the fact that there is a lot more to it than the sort of the, the brush a lot of people have been tired with, which is that you're here for the money you're here, for taking opportunity from others, it's changed people's lives. And, you know, we can talk about young English players that have missed out. And that, I think it's an issue that a lot of guys, a lot of, a lot of guys sort of understand. And speaking to Adams, you know, his big thing was, if he was going to be here on a cold pack deal, he was going to make sure that he was the best he could be, making the biggest impact in Nottinghamshire that he possibly could do. And he was winning games because otherwise he was sort of in the way. So the way a lot of these guys have spoken is, I mean, they've been really honest about it. And I think it's been pretty eye-opening for for a lot of people in terms of how much more there is to this than, than perhaps what some people have said in the past.
1: You know, when it comes down to it, we've only got, let's say 3,200 cricketers in the world, according to the um, <laughs> last plays association reference. Mm. I'd say of those, it's about 2000 and this is male of those about 2000, are top tier. So genuine first class players playing all the time, rather than just players who might play two or three games as a fill in and then disappear back into the system. So you've got about 2000 players. Mm. Of that, you've probably got, having a look at T20 numbers, I would say between 300 and 600 really, really good players around the world, right? So if that's the case, it makes sense that these guys are trying to make the most of a very short career, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or is it the average NBA career is a month long? You know, the average, I think, cricket career is something like it. The average
0: counter career ends at 26.
1: I think it ends at 26 and I think the average playing career is like a year long Mm. when you factor in all the players who play it. So it's very, very short and they have to make the money and they've got these incredible skills. Mm. And then unlike other people who can use those incredible skills and go into marketplaces around the world, there's obviously restrictions on that. And I understand the restrictions because I I do Mm. understand the other side, Yeah. but there is a certain point where these guys have to make the most money they can in that 10 to 15 year career. And trust me, I spent a lot of my time on LinkedIn. It's an absolute graveyard for former players out there. Mm, So many former players with businesses that have failed and jobs that never really worked for them that they probably weren't suited for in the first place. And you only have to look at ESPN did a great documentary a few years ago about what happens to these American athletes with these huge contracts and a huge percentage of them end up as bankrupt. So you factor all that in together and while it might be annoying if you're a England cricket fan and you want England to have as many players as you are, the truth is that there aren't that many industries within cricket that actually can pay the players what they deserve to be paid and county cricket is one of them and it's it's not particularly a new thing of course a similar thing used to happen with club cricket back in yep. the day I mean Garfield Sobers had to be talked yeah. into playing for the West Indies over playing in a Lancashire league <laughs> none of this is new it just happens to be that it became a bit more formalized and because players are more professional they probably exploited it in a more
0: professional way no exactly I mean, I mean that, that list you mentioned earlier I mean Shiv Shandapal, you know Hashim Amla is obviously you know, meant to be here this year if, you know, as, as and when if and when obviously more more cool, you know that i think it says a lot for the county championship as well that this is it's still a proper sort of blue ribbon competition and guys want to be part of it you know it's i guess it comes with the territory of having a very good first class system in a country where it certainly is a batsman it's not an easy place to play so india obviously been, you know always been sort of very protective of their players from, from a t20 perspective but in terms of getting guys out to play county championship cricket they're keen, aren't they? Because they want, mm. because they recognise the the challenge that comes with it. So, yeah, I guess it comes with having a very high-profile domestic rebel competition, certainly. And then, obviously, in some other cases now, guys like Colin Ingram, Riley Rousseau, a very good T20 competition that has sort of run in a gap in, in the global calendar.
1: Yeah, and it, I think it's important to say how great it has been for... A lot of these players who have these skills and should have been paid more. Mm. And if you are a South African cricketer, for instance, and you are not in the top three or four players, you're not on a very good salary at all. There really isn't a lot of money within South African cricket. Plus, if you're not within the top eight players, you're not even sure you're going to be back in the side. So you could see why Olivier and and Mm. Abbott, they're like, well, anything could happen. Another young quick comes through and I'm gone. Here's my chance to sign up. But the other side of this is that the Colpac ruling, while maybe it's helped a lot of individuals, certainly hasn't helped cricket in South Africa. Yeah. And had New Zealand and West Indies been stronger in first-class cricket, I think the same thing would have happened there. It was just that they didn't have maybe as many first-class players lying around of that quality.
0: No, I agree. I mean, that is, I guess, a, hu- a huge vote of contention, a huge issue, I think. I mean, you'd have to go a long way to find people that would argue that that this has helped the global game. You've only got to look at the top forms in counter cricket in the last couple of years to... To see the impact that you know that perhaps they might have had on the South African side that that I guess is coming towards the end of this fantastic generation of players that they've had. I mean, and as I say, saying I mean, in theory this is the last year of you know of the Colpak ruling as we know it. But you know whether that that should, I think to an extent depends on the end of the transitionary periods um, that the government have set, but which who knows may or may not stay the same given what's going on in the world right now. So, but in theory we might look back in ten years and you know at this area that that as I say should probably finish this year and say, why did we let this happen for as long as it did? And yeah, and I mean, I think Brexit will certainly have an impact in that regard. In that, but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean we'll never have a situation like this again, because if the UK is forced to sign trade deals with individual nations, there's nothing to say that we couldn't end up with a situation where freedom of movement could be involved in, in a particular trade deal, and suddenly you've got a whole new ruling that allows a very similar thing. So if we go on the dates we're expecting, I guess we're expecting in January at least, then... Um, this is the last year of it as we know it. And there are also going to be some very difficult conversations next year regarding contracts and guys who are currently on three-year cold pack deals and guys who've just signed up as Miguel Cummins just signed for Middlesex on a three-year cold pack deal with that proviso that at the end of this year, cold pack registrations are, are going to be cancelled. So there are all sorts of, I think, interesting hurdles to, to, to come ahead, whether that's legally or or politically.
1: And then I suppose, you know, once you've sort of covered the rest of it, the other thing is how do you think this affected counter cricket? So there's basically two key arguments, isn't mm. there? The first one is that counter cricket was probably never stronger than when all the coal packs were involved, because it did, if you count the overseas players and then the European Union players, and you know there always seemed to be random Australian players who qualified as well. There certainly seemed to be a certain point where it wasn't just English players and it was actually a stronger competition. And the other way of looking at that, which is also, I think, fair enough, Fewer England players are getting an opportunity to show their stuff. And if that's the case, that means that England as a team might have missed out on some very strong players in their time. Those are both fair. Mm. Do you have a particular side you like to sit on? To be honest,
0: the reason I did this piece I did it is because, I think partly because the other side of it's been covered very, very well. And I felt this one hadn't, no one's ever really looked back at Colpack himself. And also to a point, I, I don't feel like I'm in the right, place to so it's not so much that I'm sitting on the fence it's that I I honestly don't know the answer and I feel that I mentioned Dan Gannon's piece earlier I thought one of the what came across massively in, in Dan's piece speaking to Dave Velas Simon Harmer even Keaton Jennings who's has South African roots and I think one of the things that really came across in that was that Dan is he's South African and I think that perspective of it's I think it's very easy to sit from an English perspective and to sort of make one argument not, or another but um, it's, it's a tough one I mean I I've always sat on the fence with it, to be honest, and that's not a bustling kind of thing. That is very much a, it's a lot of theoreticals, isn't it? You know, what might have happened, mm. but also what might not have happened. So, and there'll be people that say that county cricket was far stronger in the 80s when you had some very, very, very strong overseas players here for the duration of the summer as well. So that's a really tough one. And I think it is one that I'm firmly on that fence.
1: For me, I, I just think if it's helping people improve their lives, yeah. that, that's an important thing. And also, if it's 64 people, let's move it up to 70. If it's 70 people over 16 years, not sure it ever could have had the effect that maybe people thought it could. I think it's just because people, everyone is getting lumped, you know, Roller Fandom Merva is also a Colpac player, even if he's not a Colpac player. I can't remember hmm. if he is. I think he's a Dutch player. So I think he, he's an EU player. But the point yeah. is that I think that a lot of overseas players have found different avenues to get into county cricket. And I think that is perhaps what people are more upset about. But, I mean, let's get back to Colpack because that's the main thrust of your piece. When you finally track him down, A, uh, how shocked is he that you have finally tracked him down?
0: <laughs> it was really weird. I can't even remember when I did it. I finally got to him via the European Handball Federation then via translator. It was, I think I'm right in saying that Lawrence Booth did something with him years ago, maybe 05, 06. I think it might be in the Almanac. That might be wrong. I couldn't find him ever having really spoken about it. I know he doesn't massively like speaking about it. I went back to him to try and ask a couple more things I think he, and he wasn't, he wasn't very keen to, to speak anymore. But um, I think it's interesting about it, but also he, one thing he did say is that, you know, for as long as this has been a case, he's had journalists from all over the world telling him what an impact it's had in this country or that country, that sport or this sport. I think he told me a Polish footballer had got in touch with him when the ruling first happened and thanked him. I think probably opened his eyes pretty early on to how sort of overarching and how wide-ranging this was going to be as a as a case. But I mean, even he said it sort of shocks him at the the impact it's had. I think 176 states or something have been affected in one way or another by by the Colpac ruling. And I guess, yeah, the really odd part of this is that it's, he's now a 49-year-old handball coach back in Slovakia who's got this ruling named after him, and I guess whose name has become sort of part of our everyday cricketing vocabulary. If you mention Kolpak to anyone in cricket, they'll know it's a ruling, but would they know it was initially a Slovakian handball player? I don't know.
1: I know you said the, the Polish footballer, but does he have any sort of thoughts on cricket at all, or how weird this is?
0: Not really. I think his view on all of it is that I think his views never changed from when he, cause I mean, as I say, if you go back to the, this is very much a ruling he chased on principle rather than personal effect. He was fairly sure that he would be fine. And by the time the ruling came about, his team was meeting the protocols anyway, so it wasn't really an issue. I think his thoughts are the same as they always have been, which is that he set out to change something on principle. And his view was that if this can help more people with their lives and correct what he felt was a wrong, then it's done its job. I think that's as far as his thought process on it really goes.
1: And uh, thank you so much, Nick, for coming and talking to us about the Tim Ambrose of Slovakian handball. No worries. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can follow my guest at NickFriend1 on Twitter. I'm there as well. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts because it really helps us hack their algorithm and I think it gives me free cupcakes. Copy this podcast and play it on TikTok or, I don't know, blow people out on House Party. Use all the modern social networks to really uh, pimp this podcast. And this show Red Inca is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon so thank you all so much Red Inca is made by me Jared Kimber Nick McCorriston does many things that no one understands and the theme tune is by the Red Crickets